I think that uh, I remember that it was in the fall. I think it was maybe like around Halloween. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was like a it was like a harvest hoedown. It was like a like a Halloween barbecue type thing because it was still kind of warm out. Like you could still go outside. There were people outside. My parents had some kind of like barbecue kind of thing. They had it catered. There was a ton of like food. They had like, I remember there was a metric ton of lunch meat. I wasn't like a teenager. This was like a year ago. I was working at the Post at the time. I was an editor, though. I wasn't a writer yet, but I had written a few things for the Post because while I was editing, I did write now and then for Outlook and post everything. And so my parents, they wanted to show their work friends, Jane. So they're like, oh, you have to come to this <sighs> harvest toe-down thing. So I, me and you went over there. I think you remember. I think you were hanging out with Jane at this time, and I was, like, standing in the kitchen with my mom, helping her put... There was, like, so much lunch meat. Do you remember that? There was so much. There was, like, ham, yeah. turkey. Yeah. I mean, I would. it wasn't the meat that was excessive. It just generally, you know, that had the usual, like, adult lunchable platters, but, like, a lot of them. And so there was just so much. There was so much. And I think they had, there was alcohol, and then I think there was like some other stuff. And the, in the, anyway, they were doing stuff outside as well, I think with the grill. This is to the best of my recollection. And so my mom, I'm helping her put stuff on trays, I think. And then my dad's work friends get there. And my dad's like, Elizabeth, come in here. I want to introduce you to my work friends. And I'm like, okay. So I go in there. They're like, uh, hi, what do you do? I'm like thinking to myself, there's no way my dad hasn't said what I do. They know what I do. My dad, you know, my you know my dad, obviously. But for the for the Brunig heads out there, my dad's uh quite conservative. And so he feels, you know, it's a fake news media job. So I'm like I work for the Washington Post. And then my dad's work friends like kind of look at each other and look at my dad and look at me and they're all kind of smiling at each other and they're kind of smiling at my dad and they're looking at me and like they're all kind of planning on something. And I'm just thinking like, oh my God, please just let, you know, let there be some kind of disaster or let the baby get sick. Like let there be something that allows me to leave this situation but there wasn't, and um, this lady goes, do you know what I call the Washington Post? And I was like, no, I, I, I don't know what you call it. And she looks at my dad, and my dad's smiling, and she's smiling, and she looks at me, and she goes, the Washington Compost. Ooh, gotcha. Hello, darkness, my old friend. It's just like... It was just catatonic. <laughs> it was so old. They all started to laugh. And my dad was laughing. 
<laughs> I was like, can I go now? <laughs> I just went back in the kitchen with my mom. <laughs> that was that. You know, it's just one of those life-sucking. It was that. It's not clever. It's really tired. It was intense, though. It was Everyone knows it's coming. It w- yeah. It did, like, take 30 years off my life, though. It was yeah. such a powerful show of dominance to do that right in front of my dad. And, I like, suppose. My dad was somehow in on it. It should be in, like, a nature documentary. I should, like, this is the beta female, and it just shows me, like, fleeing back into the kitchen with my mom. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, you know. I don't know what... Like an, I'm like an Omega female at this point. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what you do. There's no recovering that from that. There's no coming back. There's no civility left in society. <laughs> <laughs> Before I met you, I don't think that I had this um, like sense that of like a th- being a third person observer enjoying the black comedy of my own life. Oh yeah, no, it's it's definitely good to live your life um as if you were like disembodied um and watching yourself like on like navigate the world and, and like so like when bad things happen to you, which they often do for me, you know, if you detach enough, you can you can laugh at at how funny it is that bad things are happening to you. Um This was objectively funny. Oh yeah. <laughs> this was well, yeah. Really fu- funny, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was really good. Funny and like, yeah. <laughs> it was dark, but in it a was dark funny. way, not <laughs> it was really not the good. joke itself. It but reminded the, the me situation. of. Um, it reminded me of the film Welcome to the Dollhouse, which I know you haven't seen, but it's an important movie to me. I was like, I'm 26 years old. How is this still happening to me? <laughs> Why is this still my life? <laughs> like I thought that I thought that the last time I was gonna have to get owned like this was when I was like fifteen, <laughs> but it just keeps happening. <laughs> it was intense. No, it was I, really I enjoy, intense. yeah, I enjoyed. Uh, it was really funny though. Yeah, you know, you turn a bad thing into a good thing when you. Uh, you know strip your your life of like interior meaning and you're just sort of like <laughs> an empty vessel and you just float above your body and you're like wow look at that fucking schmuck look at this look at this <laughs> life look at this guy <laughs> yeah you go to the store go to the store you idiot <laughs> piece of old shit haha <laughs> 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 yeah get your salsa <laughs> yeah, I bet you're gonna get some salsa and some Ben and Jerry's today, aren't you? You little snack boy, you little garbage man. Like, like, yeah, that's good. Go get owned by your dad. Go back for more, you little bitch. You do it again next weekend. You harvest hoedown party participant asshole. <laughs> yeah. See, it's great. <laughs> it's good. It's yeah. good stuff. Don't call me. Don't call me. I can't believe I have friends friends are calling me that's all right that was a ringtone ignore that i have one friend so uh we're talking about civility today um civility is back in the discourse matt you've uh, you're routinely uncivil i'm an expert on civility uh-huh. um but not a practitioner of it no so again you float above it and you observe it but you don't you're not of it 
That's right. <laughs> you yeah. understand it. I'm yeah. I like the concept of civility yeah. um, more than I like the act of civility. Yeah. Um, but of course, it it's a kind of a vague concept that uh, seems to uh, the the goals seem to shift a lot. And then, of course, uh, when the goals shift enough, people will directly turn against the word, which is kind of a unique situation because usually what happens is. You know, when, when, when a concept has a positive uh, halo, yeah. which the word civility does, instead of saying, I don't like that, I don't like civility, I don't like that concept, you just continually push the boundaries of the definition of the word so that it yeah. stretches. Yeah. So like <laughs> like in, in a case where, where, you know, someone you like is being uncivil, the like normal way to handle it is you'd be like, that's not uncivil. Uncivil incivility is blah blah blah, and you just create this whole new right, idiosyncratic right, whole new definition. <laughs> yeah. But here, people will occasionally just bite the word itself and be like, mm, no, "I don't like that," and I'm willing to go against uh, those letters in that formation. In fact, as yeah. opposed to uh, evacuating the whole meaning of the word and, and replacing a new one, um, you know, situationally, which is usually how you deal with, uh, yeah. you know, sort of hypocrisy, I suppose. Right. There, so there are different senses of civility in it. They're actually sort of, when you think about the hot zone map that is the discourse, have I ever told you about sort of my fantasy of myself as a discourse observer? This also fits in with the theme of floating above yourself and observing yourself. Um, so when I think about watching Twitter and just like watching the discourse unfold before me, I imagine myself as like a CDC doctor watching a hot zone map. Okay, what's a hot zone map? You know, like an uh, like an outbreak map where you're seeing oh, cases okay. of a disease pop up on a map. Right, it's a geographical thing. Yeah, so you can like see how it's and spreading and stuff. Yeah, and uh, so like you can see different clusters of an outbreak. Like, oh, it's it's dominating here and here. Yeah. So like, you, there are two clusters of civility concern basically, and uh, uh, one cluster is among sort of like what you might call the left liberal people mm -hmm. and they were mad they're generally mad about the left right they're mad about the bernie people oh yeah that's their uh ulterior uh orientation that they uh um uh, pursue through this concept right so they're generally or at least up you know heretofore before the election of trump they were always upset about the left being mean to them and chait was on this for a long time because left liberal people who have been consistently center left and have always you know for, for many years been defending their left flank from leftists have been encountering this for a long time and have always been saying the people who would become the bernie people or the left wing of the democratic party or the leftward voices in the media they've been saying for a long time these people are rude and uncivil and i hate dealing with them and uh and that kind of came to a head during the primaries in 16. So that was a recent cluster of kind of frustration over civility. Mm -hmm. But then another place that you see a lot of frustration over civility is on the right over campus stuff. Right. So you see a lot of frustration over kids being uncivil protesters or uncivil to speakers, sort of shouting down Christina Hoff Summers, Jordan Peterson, 
uh, yeah. ben Shapiro. You see a lot. No, that of doesn't usually get expressed in terms of civility. But it it's can. a free speech that you usually do. They, a free they sometimes thing. express it in terms of free speech, but they also will emphasize the necessity of civil discourse and civil argument. Yeah, right? I, I mean, suppose. if you if you watch them in their own words, if you sort of read the intellectual dark web manifesto. Um, they'll say like, look, we're just trying to have civil discussions and civil arguments in, in like an uncivil age, you know? So those are kind of the two clusters. And so those are informative clusters because what they tell you is the root of all of this is that civility is a big piece of liberalism. I hate to harp on it, but it's a piece of public reason, right? Oh um, uh, yeah, I think that's know. right. I mean, it certainly can be like if we're yeah. going to have a deliberative democracy, then you know we need to be able to talk, and if we need to be able to talk, people have to be nice to each other and that sort of thing. Right. If we're going to have a deliberative democracy, we need to be able to talk. One piece of being able to talk is the public reason piece. We need to be able to talk in terms everyone understands. Another piece of the public reason is we need to be able to talk in ways everyone can tolerate. <laughs> um, you know, talk in a way that keeps conversations going which is, you know, mere civility. Right? Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, I see that. Right, and so that's kind of a piece here. And, um, and, and you know, so there are left arguments against that. One of them is, well, this usually ends up being deployed to protect powerful people from critiques. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that's why I'm not sure how much I buy. So, so people do say that, and it, and it definitely does happen that way. But it's also the case that, like, you know, what people really do with the civility stuff is they they harp on it when it's to their advantage and they uh, excuse incivility when it's to their advantage. You know what I mean? And right. so if you're on the left, it makes sense for you to adopt a modified civility position that says it's OK when you use against the powerful yeah. because you view yourself and you know, most of the time you're like representing the less powerful. Yeah. And so is that really like a principled view? I principally don't like it when you use it against the powerful or uh, when you're uncivil towards the powerful, or is that uh, really uh, just a convenient view for, uh, you know, don't, I, I, I would use it against people I don't like, but not people I do like, you know, it, the two things bleed together. And like, if you really want to test someone on that, you find a powerful person that they do like yeah. and you push the envelope and you see if you can get them to, to get mad at it. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I've, I've seen that happen time and time again, where it's like, oh, that's a powerful person, but we like that person. They're on our side or they yeah. have some other characteristics. And, and the same person who will say, this is a tool of the powerful to silence the powerless. Nah, they sing a different tune in that setting. Right. So. I, I don't know how serious I don't know how seriously I take that, uh, you know, standard. And you can see examples of formerly pro-civility people kind of moving off that uh, sort of universal pro-civility position, kind of all over the place in the Trump era. Oh yeah, well yeah, well because the, the the all the identities and stuff have switched, right? right. Where now it's like, well. Who, who who is it that we that's being mean it's anti-trump people and who is it that are the victims you know in terms of discourse obviously not in terms of actual physical like material policy who's right. being mean there is obviously the trump administration but if you you know ignore that and you just say well who's you know being the most verbally vicious well right. obviously it's the people out of power who are really mad at the horrible stuff that's going on right. and so who are the victims of verbal viciousness it's the trump people 
okay, well, I don't like Trump people and I do like the, the resistance. So now I'm against civility. Right. You know, that's how it plays out, uh, which is fine. I mean, I don't really care, but it's just kind of goofy because, like you said, um, you know, these would have a lot of these people might have been people who uh, when when the shoe was on the other foot and they were they had a left challenge mm-hmm. um, that left challenge was mean to them. Mm-hmm. And and in that situation, they they were like civility keeps our democracy afloat. Right. And I mean, there's no question mm-hmm. in that situation that the left challenge is the less powerful yeah. of the groups. It didn't have any institutional support. It didn't have uh, support from the party. It didn't have s- really much support in the media or anything like that. Um, but in that situation, you know, even though they're the more powerful, uh, they they f- they find themselves on the side of, oh, be civil to everyone, even, you know, uh, you know, excusing the powerful powerlessness distinction. So what is your personal view, actually, on civility, though, in your own practice? I mean, obviously, you see it as a as a sort of concept that is frequently abused. Yeah, I think it's abused. I mean, for me, I think it's um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of rooms to make a lot of room to make distinctions that I think people don't make very clearly. So for example, to me, um, let's say uh, someone makes a point. Okay. They, they say, I think X is true because of Y. And I go, uh, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Is that uncivil? I would say that's not uncivil. I'm critiquing your argument. And I think it's really dumb. That's what we do here. We have arguments with one another. Right. Now, if I said, uh, maybe if I said, you know, you're an idiot, <laughs> then that would be uncivil because it's now directed at you as opposed to your point. Right. Now, of course, I've said both over the years, so I'm not saying that I've like followed this <laughs> distinction <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to the point. But I, yes. I, I see the distinction there between like you're an idiot and yes. that's a stupid point. Um, and but but I think a lot of people will you know, provided they are, um, you know, uh, partial to the person whose point's being attacked, will say, oh, that's too excessive and you're being uncivil. And yes. to me, like, in the discourse, if the argument is about the argument, then, you know, pretty much anything goes. Um, yeah. If it starts being about the person, physical attributes about the person, stuff like that, then it, it, it's, it shades into incivility. Um, which, which you've which also partaken of over the years. Yeah, from time to time. Though, you know, even even then, usually it's about, you know, how they're <laughs> stupid or whatever, as opposed yeah. to, uh, you know, side stuff like you're ugly or whatever. I don't, I, I don't think I've ever done, done stuff like that. Um, so You did at least tell one bald guy who will remain nameless that he could change his avatar, suggesting that he was just an egg. That's true. Are we allowed to mention <laughs> names on this one? I think we shouldn't. We can't? Okay. We <laughs> well, back in the day, you know, when Twitter was still good and everyone <laughs> loved weird Twitter and everyone loved left Twitter because we hadn't yet gotten to that point where now left, left Twitter is associated with Bernie and therefore an oppressive group in society and whatnot. <laughs> okay. Like everyone liked them, like the libs liked them because they were funny and they were good at lampooning, you know, yeah, the right Yeah, they were just like kind that. of like uh, rakes. They're harmless. Yeah. And, and, you know, at that time, you know, you had the, the tea cots and the tea party people yeah. and they were really hilarious on Twitter and that sort of thing. The, the tension level in politics in general was a lot lower yeah but i mean i think it's especially it's this intra-left yeah yeah or you know if you you call them left whether you know the left of center was more united in the sense that you know they hadn't had this 
very clean break. Right. Um, and so people were more open and happy to like, you know, play around with that. Yeah. So, but yeah, but that person was also being really, really ugly. So to me, to you. And so, you know, <laughs> the tip for Tad, I feel like, uh, you know, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of how I do things. Uh, if someone attacks uh, someone in a in a certain way, I, I, I'll give it right back. Or I used to. I, I try to avoid it these days because uh, I'm told I'm not supposed to do that. So, um, you know, I just yeah. let it be. I think that might be the better option. I'm uh, not going to lie. It's the more... Um, it's the more pragmatic option given the the nature of society, but it is the m- less just approach, I would say. <laughs> uh, so I I uh, I think a lot about the civility arguments. Um, people bring them up with me a lot because I'm fairly easygoing with people. Uh, I guess my position is that, I mean, I have the same problems with civility I have with public reason. That I think a lot of time it just translates to being false with people, you know. And I think that they can tell that you're being false with them. Oh, it can be irritating for a- sure. And it can be irritating. <laughs> just as false. irritating if someone is, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess it kind of comes off as condescending or something. It comes like off. That. It can come off as condescending. It can come off as. Um, I mean, like there uh, frequently you'll see people in the res- in responses to Trump's tweets mocking journalists by going like, "Sir, sir, sir." <laughs> like I think there was an onion or click or click hole has the resistance hole. Yeah. You know, which is like a fake vertical, and they had like a whole headline that was just like, "Sir, Mr. President, sir, sir, Mr. President, sir," and like that's all it was. Right. And, yeah. Like, There's uh, a way of being performatively civil that's actually pretty ugly. Where well. you're like demonstrating a level of respect that the other person knows you don't actually have. Right. Um, and so verbalizing it only just sort of underscores the degree to which you don't actually feel it um, and can put a distance between you and the person that's actually damaging in the interaction. Um, so that's one problem. And then, then, then the other problem is I, I actually do share a lot of the critiques of civility that are made on the left in terms of it being a shield frequently for people who are um, in certain positions of power be- precisely because it, it can be so elasticized. Yeah. So like any kind of uh, civility can be anything from be nonviolent, which I think is a completely fair expectation. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, to, um, you know, don't make what one might interpret as um, an unglamorous implication about someone's character, which yes. I think is a completely ridiculous expectation. Right. Um, you well, know, and so and and so I, I I feel like that the the accurate thing to expect is that people be virtuous in their conduct, and that they take every situation and every person, and you know as they come, and they're all going to be unique. Yeah, I mean, so so I think he- here's where I think you can kind of join the oh, it's for the powerful with what I think is going on in most of the cases. And that is what happens is if you're not doing well in an argument and this might be a formal argument or it might be like a social argument or like a PR battle or yeah, whatever. Yeah. If if in the discourse and the dialectic, you're kind of getting 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 it handed to you. Yeah, um, that is a way of of escaping 
the the situation is by nope let's move up to a meta level and critique how the debate is being done as opposed to the substance and that is most beneficial to you if you are already so powerful that losing the argument doesn't really matter that much like the substance it just doesn't like well whatever i'm the powerful figure here i'm the status quo figure here as long as i don't you know do something that just can gets me dethroned in some way if i just kind of you know, run this thing to a tie or even just a slight loss, then I'm good. Right. And, and that's the power, you know, that is the powerful who, who, for whom that's the case. We're just with where all they need to do is draw and the civility thing gets you a draw in most cases. Um, so I, I think it connects in that way, but you will see it also with people who maybe are, are not so powerful, but are still kind of getting, getting it handed to them and, and are, you know, looking for an escape hatch, um, I've seen that hundreds of times in my uh, in my uh, career of arguments. So uh, certainly, your per your approach with arguments is to prosecute them uh, to the strongest and clearest extent you can in public, with the intent of winning them for all to see in the clearest and most decisive way possible. Um, this has always been your approach. I think that the way that I typically approach arguments when someone is wrong about something um, in a way that I find disconcerting is, you know, typically I'll try to talk to the person in private. Mm-hmm. I know this is not your style. Well, it's not a private public thing. Um, you know, I mean, it's the same with debate or anything else that I've done. I mean, for me, the distinction is, and th- this kind of gets to an issue of defining civility, which is so subjective and relative to like social expectations and stuff. To me, and maybe this is because we came up through the debate world, the argument, it's not about you. If you beat my argument, I'm like, I feel a little bad because, you know, I thought this was a good argument, obviously. Um, but it doesn't go to my core because I've lost dozens and you know hundreds of arguments throughout the years as a competitive debater and then online and like my self my ego or whatever is not wrapped up into each particular argument it's like shielded inside of you somewhere it's wrapped up in like i'm a generally good arguer which doesn't mean i bet a hundred percent yeah but for other people who haven't embodied this, it's like each argument is a personal thing to them. And no, this is like another way in which you're like a mutant and it's like, like you're, you're like a space alien. Like you argue, your ego, like the little homunculus mat inside of you that is like untouchable is, is wrapped up inside of being like a shield of generally a good arguer, which is completely fair and legitimate. But like most people's egos are like um, interwoven into the world in such a way that like you have to imagine them as like having tentacles that extend out in the world that like you can cut off or damage very Mm -hmm. easily and so like social interactions are either going to like strengthen and like wreathe those tentacles in garlands and make them happy and vibrant or like hurt them and burn them and cut them up right and like i feel like that's not something that your ego is at risk of but it is for other people and so like with other people you know, they make an argument and what they're doing is like putting a tentacle of their ego out in the world. And so like, if you really want to change their mind and make them right, I think that the best thing to do is take them aside in private and be like, hey, how are you doing? Like, let's, let's catch up and eat and like, and be honest about it and be like, 
Possibly. I mean, I've never persuaded you know? anyone in in, pu- in private or public uh, in the discourse world. I can't count a single person that's been persuaded. You don't like, even know who the people you may have persuaded well, talking to them yeah. on a friendship level in private, you know, because you don't well, have people, to Well, like yeah, people who don't have particular positions might, but I mean, someone who like may have said something and then, you know, go in the DM, what is this? you know, yeah, it's sort of... see them in, p- in person. Or like, you know, here's the the thing, though. Here's here. I want to distinguish a little. Right. To me. Right. It's like sports. Right. (laughs) So, you know, when I was younger, I played a lot of sports. I played four sports and, you know, up through high school and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the nature of the sport is you go out and you try to beat the other person. Uh, but you people have really good friendships with people who are on their team, even though they're trying to, like, beat beat them and like i've had like really good friends like throw the ball at me in yeah, <laughs> yeah. baseball and it's like yeah well you know that's what you do sometimes you throw the ball at them um and so to me it's the same kind of thing it's like this is a this is an arena of competition and the, and and you 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 know it's like boxers or something just start beating the crap out of each other I but understand. then they're like buddies and, and you like, and i have debated against each other many times and you have savagely beaten me in debate but well, it's not personal. It's a mixed bag, right? It's a, that's to me. So, so, but this gets to the expectation thing, right? Where, where it's like other people who, for whom this is not like a sport right. where you like go in and you try to win, but you're friends with the competitors, even though you're trying to beat them. And in yeah. some cases, like humiliate yeah. them in sports. Um, but it's like, no, this is part of my, I don't know who I am. It's part of my being or something or like, like that. It's and like so part of my, th- my thinking, my thoughts, and I'm helping like explain my view of the world and, you know, yeah, who I am. Sure. I mean, yeah, I'm so that's the difference. I mean, you know, to me, it's like I'm doing the yeoman's work of trying to push, push, push <laughs> the dialectic <laughs> the forward. yeoman's discourse work. Yeah. And like sometimes I push it forward and it doesn't work. And it's like, all right, what's the next thing? You know, like so. <laughs> but you don't need to, you know, you You're don't you don't bat 100%. Yeah. Out there just doing the discourse work every day. Just yeah. <laughs> and so the. But then the ego is built in and like I'm doing the work and I do a lot of good work and a lot of times it pushes the ball forward. Not always. Sometimes I get crammed back and someone points out that, you know, I've made an error and used the wrong, you know, uh, statistic or something. But see, this is why Um, I think that civility is so ill-fitting for conducting yourself in the discourse world because even though uh, we all realize that we have to talk to each other to make a deliberative democracy happen, Everybody talks in different ways. Yeah, the the meta the meta stuff is different, um, and across cultures too. Across cultures, there was this really when I was in Boston, um, I was in the National Lawyers Guild there, of course, and the executive director of of the National Lawyers Guild was this was this Polish woman, Mm -hmm. and she would like we would go out to the bars and stuff like with the National Lawyers Guild. That's where we would meet and have our like meetings and stuff. And she would just get drunk and like just argue like crazy and like <laughs> at some point like loud and just like yelling and whatever like gesticulating <laughs> and and but there was a point at which like somehow there was a discussion of this and she was just like this is how everybody is in Poland like yeah, we just go normal. out to the bars and just yell this is like and socializing for me right this is just how we do it yeah. and then and you've seen stuff in this in the in the U.S. as well I was watching uh, Thirty for Thirty about uh, Mike and the Mad Dog uh, in uh, New York City the the famous sports radio people and their whole shtick was they would just like scream and argue with one another the whole time and like that's a thing people do in sports and whatnot and so it's like there yeah i mean 
people have cultural norms around argument as something that can be rowdy and like I'm trying you're that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard some people do it that way and some people go into argument in a much more searching and a personal way and some people go into it in a much more collaborative way where they're really trying to build something with other people and so in the discourse I think it's very important to just kind of evaluate the people that you're dealing with deal with them on a personal basis be very gentle to the greatest extent you can. Again, this is the Liz Brunig patented method. This is not... But but it, it doesn't work, right? It's not a universalizable thing because then, then, you know, if two people are having an exchange and they both have different preferences about how to do argument and one wants to be rowdy and one wants to not be rowdy, then uh, you can't win. Because well, yeah, one person's I mean, going to get something they don't want. If you if you determine that the person is, uh, you know, a rowdy arguer, like we, we have friends who are like you. You you meet people online who you know are like you. Oh, yeah, tons of people. This is why people. you just bitch at Matt Stoller all day, because you know he's like you. Oh, yeah, Matt doesn't care. Yeah. He doesn't care, and he, 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 he said all sorts of wild <laughs> stuff about <laughs> like, me. He's like, you're like a socialist uh, idiot. I'm like, come on, Matt. It's like two Furbies yelling at each other in a room, but I neither of you guys care. You're both into it. So. Oh, it's great. I, I, I like Matt a lot, so yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it's not a big deal. And me, me and Winship back in the day used to get into yeah. some real... I remember that. Real, t- you know throwdowns but now Winship is uh he himself has reformed and and has decided to go the civility Good route boy Scott. not in a not in a like hectoring way where he tried no, to I'm proud of him, but yeah. in the in, a, in the it's someone set him down like i guess like you tried to set me down and, and told him uh, you and uh henwood also henwood is the, the greatest of, i yeah. love henwood i mean his his style is is top i like scott winship style even though he's a conservative i, I mm. like that approach it's a much more fun and like the stakes are a little bit higher and that kind of stuff you know it is very fun to watch yeah i mean as long as it's like there is substance to it and it is moving the ball forward and like people haven't devolved totally to the point of just like you're you know fat or whatever like yeah. you know then it's still fun to see to see it go go on. I so. will always prefer inviting people over for dinner and being like, Exp- "Explain to me this." Uh, and then you know, if they're like, "Oh, I've thought better of it," letting it go. And uh, also, you know, if someone is wrong about something, that's not the worst crime. They can still be your friend. Uh, and uh, oh yeah, yeah, don't get mad at them for being wrong. No, you know, people. That's can the be whole wrong. point it's is okay. to say it doesn't matter that you're wrong, but also you're really wrong here. Yeah, you really just way off well, the rails, hey, that's buddy. That's not generally how I handle it, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, you have to. People's, uh, you know, the soul is like a fan worm. You've heard my shtick on that before, mm-hmm. right? The soul is like this delicate thing that, well, if it's fully displayed, it's beautiful and very vibrant. But you know, the barest shadow of a predator falls across and it just <laughs> retracts into its shell. So you have to be very careful with it. And uh, I mean, I try, even people who are not very nice to me, I try to be, or who don't like me or think I'm stupid or something, I try to at least be patient. Um, periodically, yeah. I do just kind of lose it sh- lose it online, though. I lost my shit the other day. I told Peg to never speak English again. <laughs> I felt bad about that. I did feel like he was being really unfair, though. Yeah. I deleted it. I shouldn't have said that. Well... You know, French is a beautiful language. I mean, you wouldn't be losing anything by not speaking English. You know, they, they, uh, I guess it's beautiful. I don't know. It's a, it's a romance language. Yeah. I guess it, it can be beautiful depending on how you, your accent and whatnot. 
I think it's pretty universally recognized for its beauty. The Japanese love French, for example. It's just got no it's unfamiliar to me. I guess that's what I struggle with. Hmm. Like, I don't know what you're saying. I'm just lost, buddy. It's unclear. What about English? You like the sound of English? It just doesn't sound like anything. It's like water or whatever. Sounds like water. No, water. You know, water doesn't taste like anything. Water tastes like metal. No. <laughs> A little bit. No. Somewhat. Water is tasteless. That's by definition. It's tasteless. It's uh, not, no, the definition of water is not a tasteless thing. Tasteless, odorless, colorless. Those are the three. Water you know, definitely has I mean, smell. it's the definition is hydrogen and oxygen, but those are, you know, universal characteristics of water. Obviously, water could be contaminated, but if it's just pure water it doesn't taste like anything i don't know about this okay so janice supreme court decision yeah janice the uh yeah what is janice janice versus asks me <laughs> yeah the american federation of state and municipal and county employees yeah so i know all the union um acronyms by the way every single one of them seiu service employees international union AFL-CIO. American Federation of Labor, Con Congress of Industrial Organizations. Those are the only ones I know. UAW, United Auto Workers. IATSE. That's made up. The uh, International Association of Theater Stage Employees. Okay, come on. You made that up. It's a real you one. You just made that up on the spot. That's a real one. I at sea. If you like do lights on theater productions, you're in that union. It's true. I'm in the guild. AFG, American Federation of, of Government Employees. I have heard you're of that. You're in the newspaper guild, but yeah. it's really CWA, Communication yeah, Workers of CWA. America. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, we've picketed with I've picketed for them before. Mm-hmm. IBT, International Brotherhood of Teamsters. So explain uh, Janice real quick with the agency fees and whatnot. Uh, just give me a rundown of the case for... Uh so I'm an expert in labor law. Okay. One of the leading experts I don't know if in I the country. Uh, well, at least in this podcast. You know, in percent terms, I'm like a top, easily top 1% of the American population in knowledge of labor law. Verified. I this. would say 0 0.1 probably. <laughs> know about that. Most people don't know a lot about it. Yeah. For well, one, I mean, you got to be a lawyer. There's only a small percentage of time you need to do it. I'm like one of the best in okay. the country right. at labor law. Just by um, narrowing it down. Yeah, I guess. Exactly. And I was at, uh, I worked at the National Labor Relations Board. I remember that. Until NLRB, uh, um, also known as the board. Um, sometimes um, they administer the National Labor Relations Act, also known as the NLRA or the Act. But that's private sector labor law. It's a different thing. In the U.S., we have two systems, I guess really kind of three, three buckets of labor law. You've got the private sector labor law, which is governed by the National Labor Relations Board. You've got federal labor law for federal employees, uh, which is governed by, um, oh my God, I forget the name of that organization. I'll come back to it. And then you have state level labor law, which is governed by state law. So states will create laws. And that, that's for public sector workers in the states. So, And this is about a state public sector uh, union. Yeah. Asks me. 
which represents uh, teachers and municipal workers and that kind of thing. I actually don't know who Janice is. I think his name is Mark Janice, and he's an Illinois state employee. Is he a teacher? I don't know what his job is. Originally, this suit was uh, like filed by the governor. Oh uh, yeah, that's that's a real stupid like technical uh, yeah. thing going on in this lawsuit. That but then it was found that he didn't have standing, so they just dug up some other guy. Yeah, yeah. In the Seventh Circuit, that was like oh, uh, something they pressed, where they were like, "This needs to be dismissed because the governor was on it," and then they just replaced the governor with these people. But really, they needed to dismiss the suit and then have them refile it. And then Posner, being Posner was like, that would be stupid and inefficient because we're just going to get right back here anyway, so let's just do it. Um, but yeah, so so Janice is a state employee, and I guess he doesn't like paying dues to the union, and so he's saying uh, he shouldn't have to pay dues to the union. Mm-hmm. Um, now, to be clear, union dues on the, on the, and for public sector workers and private sector workers, you are not required to pay dues that go to political spending there are two buckets of money there's money that goes for representational expenses arbitrations contract negotiations that sort of stuff the direct relationship between you and the employer and then there's the second bucket that'll go to political stuff so they might uh, uh support campaigns and candidates and run ads and that sort of thing and, it's cl- and to be clear you're not being forced to be a member Yes, yes. Technically, you're not a member. You are an uh, agency fee payer. Um, they call it an agency fee. So you're not paying union dues as a member. You're not paying membership dues. Right. You opt out of membership, um, and then you, you can become an agency fee payer. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're covered by the bargaining unit. Right. That's how the rule works. Mm-hmm. Um so, so that's the key, key distinction, right? And this has always been the distinction. I actually, actually did a case like this when I was at the NLRA where I had to go through all this case law, Abood and the, you know, all these cases. So, so, so the logic is, just to clarify for, for the listeners at home and you know, other people who are not experts like myself, uh, if you're covered by the union's bargaining, if you're an employee, so if the union makes an agreement... You know, and you're you're working in a government workplace, and uh, let's say you're a teacher at a school, and the teacher union makes an agreement, then it's going to apply to you. It's going to apply to all the teachers, not just union teachers. Right. And so, if that's how the state sets it up, which all of them have, it's all of this is a creature of state law. So the state sets up a framework for their public employees to bargain in, and generally, some of them won't set it up at all. Yeah. I don't think in like Texas, for instance, I don't think you can have a public sector union. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Um, I don't have that. So you just ban them in some states, which they do. Um, but in other states, yeah. So the state will typically set up a framework where, all right, if m- the majority of the people in a particular uh, agency or whatever wants to be in a union, then they'll have a union and then we'll negotiate with the union. And when they reach an agreement with the union, it's going to apply to all the workers in that workplace. And so, so the logic is that because the union is bargaining on behalf of everyone in the workplace, you pay agency fees because the union is covering you. Yes, the bargaining, uh, yes, so the labor of the union is helping you, and so we need everyone to pay in. Um, 
and not just in the bargaining. There's all sorts of stuff they'll do. They'll handle your grievances. They'll they'll take um, stuff to arbitration. There's cover the, your legal fees. The administration of a contract on an ongoing basis is costly. Right. Um, you know, every time the employer disciplines you, you go to the union, and the union will check it out and and see if you know they want to file a grievance against the discipline. Um, you know, and all that all that takes time. All that ta- takes money to to do all that kind of stuff. Um, and so. You know, you're benefiting from that service. Sure. So that's why even if you decide you don't want to be a member for whatever reason, that's why you pay agency fees. Right. That's the uh, that's a a sort of like rationale for it is like uh, this is a fairness. They call it the fair share fee. Right. You know, pay your fair share. You know, it's it's a common good type thing. So uh, but some people don't want to do this. And the reasoning in Janus is actually a weird. It's a free speech reasoning. Yes. Right. So so. But it's a free speech reasoning that's particular to the public sector at this moment, right? So one way you could view it is you could say, well, all union dues to uh, all dues to a union are violate my free speech because then the union goes and you know represents me in you know contract negotiations or something, and so in that sense, I'm being made to fund speech, mm-hmm. you know, to uh, to my employer that I may disapprove of or something. Right. But they they make it very narrow to the public sector and say, hey, look, when a public sector union lobbies the government, we understand that to be political speech. And so that you don't pay dues to that unless you want to. Yeah. So that goes back to the two buckets. Yeah. Representation versus political. But wait a minute. Isn't a contract negotiation with the government, isn't that basically like lobbying the government? Right. Isn't that basically like, what's the distinction? It's political by nature. It's political by nature because it's the government that's the employer. So you could lobby the government and say, hey, I want you to spend more money on something. Or you could uh, be a contract negotiator and basically say, hey, I want you to spend more money on something. Aren't those the same thing? If one should be banned, then the other should be right. banned, blah, blah, blah. So go from there, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so, so, so the first kind of interesting tidbit here is, you know, the conceptual issue of the government qua government, you know, as a sovereign actor and the government qua employer. Mm-hmm. And we distinguish between those things in all sorts of areas, mm-hmm. right? So like, um, you know, the government has certain leeway, certain, certain like employer um prerogatives mm-hmm. that we don't think of as being necessarily political right like they can fire someone right. for doing something and we and, and no one says oh you need to release the name of everyone who was fired you need to tell us exactly why they were fired and that sort of thing people go no it's an employer situation right right like we want to maintain privacy just like you might with a private employer so we kind of respect that distinction um even if it is a little bit um unsteady in places um and so they're trying to collapse that distinction mm-hmm. and say oh no everything the government does even when it does it qua employer is politics and so negotiating a contract with them is politics negotiating a contract period is politics because the state enforces contracts well right so that would be one way to go that That's i exactly actually what agree I think. with which would be to say well hey yeah. Even if I'm my union is negotiating a contract with my private employer, the nature of the contract is when you write a contract, what you're really doing is you're writing a little note 
You're making a little tiny law. You're making a little law, a little yes. note that you give to the state, and the state says, all right, if you guys both sign this, then we're going to enforce, enforce it. it. So yeah. a signed contract is really a way of committing the state to do certain court actions That's you know, true. If, if they need to. That's true. And so, well, if I don't want the state to, you know, if I don't like the contract, then, then I could say, hey, I don't want the state to have to enforce this contract because I'm against it. And so I don't right. want to, you know, that's politics. What we're doing is politics. I mean, like, obviously it is on some level all politics, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> where does that take you ultimately if you collapse out the distinction? Um, I think we'll get there. I mean, uh, this is like dystopian, but... So this Janus was funded by uh, wealthy industrialists. It was funded by a slew of right-wing foundations uh, that are funded by a bunch of different uh, business owners out from the Midwest, mainly, including the Cokes. Uh, some of Scott Walker's sugar daddies were in on it. I, mean, I think some ed reformers were in on yeah, it. Yeah, they're just all like union busters and people who are pissed about unions in general and yeah some ed reformers um there was i mean these things are very costly to finance but uh, needless to say these were not people who are notorious for caring about free speech <laughs> right these are just capitalists right um and the freedom that they're advancing here is not any kind of robust liberty this is just alienation oh right? all the arguments are fake what you right. have is you have this someone who doesn't like of liberty. <laughs> yeah that's the point and and so okay you don't like unions and you know it's like with most most legal arguments <clears throat> that really get per, not most but the ones yeah. that get headlines and go to go to the supreme court the argument the nature of what people are debating about really has nothing to do with what people are interested in yeah right i mean remember the obamacare the first obamacare suit was was about uh, whether uh the individual mandate uh, was a fine or a tax it's like <laughs> Do you, so you really so you think there were these principled people in the world who were like, you know what? I, this is a fine. This is a, gotten. This needs to be called a fine. What's funny about it's this like, is, no. like in any sane society, like if we actually had conservatives, which we don't, they would be up in arms about this because this is the destruction of civil society, right? This is those little platoons that stand between, just like the vast state and the individual. Now you see corporations, which, as you've pointed out, are multinational, organized above states. They're these huge uh, entities that are ever more powerful, increasingly so, very wealthy, exert an enormous amount of control over your life. Underneath them are states, which kind of take orders from them at this point. And then corporations and states in conjunction with one another have succeeded in destroying everything between them and the individual. Yeah, yeah. Unions being one of those layers where workers could come together to exert some kind of agency. Yeah, I mean, it was a civil group. And in like some of the uh, big cities and stuff where they have the, the big unions, you see all sorts of like interesting stuff. They have like... They used to have parades, They dances, do parades. Yeah. They still have like a Labor Day parade. And you'll see like, you know, the, you know, SCIU drummers or something like that. It's yeah, just like it's a, sort a huge of a, part of civic life. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think, you know, probably, you know, for the conservatives who care about this at all, which I think is not very many, even though obviously people will posture about it because yeah. it's a good way to like argue for quote unquote limited government and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I think their vision is something like, uh, well, 
I want you to belong to your company. Yes. You know what I mean? So it's like the company is like your little platoon yeah. and the whole company. And and sometimes you'll even see some, I don't know, liberalish writers. I forget there was there was a guy, a business insider who had a piece a while ago, like many years ago, who said, like, I don't like unions because they create this division between, you know, the workers and the management. And I want them to be, you know, together as a unit, that sort of thing. <laughs> um and so that you can kind of see that vision, um, but you know it's uh, uh, there's a lot of things wrong with that vision, of course. Which is like one as a sociological reality, the it's workers and the top management are, do not hang out together, do not right. go to the same clubs together. Do they they're so socially distant from one another. It's just it's unimaginable that they would form a platoon, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, and and then. Um, and then, yeah, and then there's the problem of, well, how do I socialize in a, like, you know, open and, and comfortable way with the person who can fire me and a person who is, you know, their interest is in cutting my pay and that sort of thing. Right. It's just, it's a tough, tough thing to, to get behind. So. Those interests diametrically opposed to mine, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, so... But that, I think, is maybe where they would go. It's like, hey, yeah, you, you don't need the UAW. You can just be, I'm a Ford man. But these companies don't even resemble the type of companies these people are fantasizing about anymore, right? They're No, well, they've never resembled massive. it. Nothing has ever resembled anything like that. This and is not like mom and pop's uh, grocery store anymore. Even mom and pop's. I mean, how often do you hang out with, with you know, I mean, maybe if you, if the job is such that, the workers in the firm are of a similar socioeconomic class as the CEO, right? So it's like a firm that employs a lot of higher educated, high income workers, you know, like maybe a tech company or something. Yeah. Then you could kind of see it because there's not that much social distance. But if you're talking about even a, a small business that is, you know, a grocery store or something like that, you know, what it takes to run that and, and the education and stuff involved, it's th it's going to be different, you know? So what will this mean, Janice? What will the fallout mean, do you think? Well, so I, I think it's an interesting... Um, so, so, so first off, okay, so here, here's the thing. If Janice comes down, the very first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to go to the uh, district court here in D.C., Yeah. I'm going to file a suit saying I don't have to pay my bar dues anymore. Okay. You know, because certainly the DC bar is involved in politics. I mean, even more explicitly yeah. than because they have this thing called the board of professional responsibility. Yeah. And the, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. And like, I don't necessarily agree with all the legal ethics stuff that they do. Sure. Um, so, I mean, that is way more obviously political um, than a union negotiating pay pay rates, yeah. you know, with the employer who happens to be the government. So that's the first thing is we can try to I, I would just, just just go ahead and eliminate all of the professional organizations. So this year, this is your accelerationist. The bar needs to go. Approach. The um, dentist association, the doctor association, yeah. the, the I don't know if teachers pay into an association. There, there are a lot of these, you know, quote unquote, capital P professions that have these compulsory organizations that clearly have a political, you know, aspect to them that's right but but they're they're participatory right i could become the president of the dc bar if i like tried hard enough and yeah. like so that that's sort of usually it's not like a top-down kind of thing but 
but that so are unions participatory. Right. So so yeah, like just clear out all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, no more bars. I don't even know how they will operate anymore after that. You know, yeah. um, of course, I think if I filed that suit, uh, the court would find an, uh, a, a, a clever way to distinguish uh, and, and still insist that I have to pay bar dues. But uh, that that I think would be an interesting uh, an interesting attempt, at least. And then we just sit back and wait until uh, they find someone to push a suit on the private side. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, the private side is interesting. Um, you know, they'll make associational points on the private mm-hmm. side. I mean, th- you know, it's all political, so um, I don't think that this would be key to that. But uh, they're already winning the right to work battle in many ways across the country, just state house by state house in the private yeah. sector. So everybody's turn will come. Capital will eat everything. it'll chew everything down into dust everyone who thinks they'll get on its good side everybody who thinks it can be controlled everybody who thinks the real problem is something else they'll all get crushed you know another aspect of this that 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 point reminds me of is my long-standing view that you know um if i'm a shareholder of a company Mm -hmm. then i should be able to own a company and not have to you know, f- support any of its political spending or lobbying or anything like that. Um, you know, just as you might want to be a worker in a company and not support the union. That's um, fair. So, you know, I've called this before the right to own. Um, and it, it does seem to follow. It's yeah. sort of weird that, hey, just because I am uh, one of the collective owners of this company, which is sort of what shareholders are in a, in a sense, yeah. um, that I have to go along with them spending money on lobbying that I don't agree with? No. I should somehow be able to opt out of that and and not have to support that part of the company's operations. Um, It's a similar kind of thing, you know? I mean, the argument should apply in both both cases if you're really serious about it. Freedom Um, with no obligations, no responsibilities, this absolute and extreme freedom, which can also be called alienation. Well, and it would, it would, yes, and and I mean, the fact is that economic organization requires combining groups of people together, yeah, and and then sort of making them act collectively without them necessarily agreeing to every aspect of it. Right, that's what firms operating for the common good. That's exactly what firms do, whether it's for the common good or not, like in a or some common good. It's just a collective action. I mean, like, I guess good, you know, a company might f- get their workers all to do really bad stuff, but <laughs> for the work, for them to get the bad stuff done, they, they need everyone to, to, to go with the, with the flow and take the orders. You know what I mean? Yeah. If each individual worker in a company and each individual owner in a company can opt out or in of every particular expenditure or whatever, then the whole thing falls apart, right? The whole nature of the firm is a kind of uh, uh, forcing people to behave concertedly, you know? Well, that's where capital wants you a million little pieces. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.